Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on 1st of June. I'm James Heal, The Spectator's political correspondent, and your host for this week's episode. Coming up on the programme... Is Rishi turning red? Kate Andrews has written about the Prime Minister's new socialist transformation for the cover piece this week. She joins me on the show alongside Sebastian Payne, the director of the centre-right think tank Onward. It's been a week of blob-on-blob fighting between the Cabinet Office and the Covid inquiry, but is there a cultural problem within the civil service? Joining me to discuss is Quentin Les. There's trouble in Spain as Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has called for a snap general election in a bid to save his premiership. Following a triumph for the opposition in the local elections last week, can he regain control? And what has been so controversial about the day he selected to go to the polls? I'm joined by Esperanza Aguirre. Almost all of our British viewers will be familiar with the Philip Schofield saga over the past two weeks, a daytime ITV presenter who dramatically resigned after nearly 40 years of working in television following a sex scandal at work. But why are Brits so obsessed with salacious stories? Douglas Murray thinks there's bigger fish to fry. He'll be joining me on the show to discuss his article. And finally, when Victorian schoolmasters and Oxbridge-educated gentlemen were taming football and codifying cricket, games that dated back to the pagan era clung on in isolated pockets of rural Britain. Do any of them still exist today? Harry Pearson has written a book on the weird and wonderful world of folk sport, from cheese rolling to bottle kicking. He reveals all on the show. Before we get going, thanks to our brilliant sponsors, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for supporting the show. Canaccord are experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavered support in challenging times. Visit canaccordwealth.com for more information. If you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss another episode. First up, Kate Andrews has written the cover piece for this week's magazine about Rishi Sunak's political makeover. Prime Minister is shifting to the left of the political spectrum with price controls and high taxes, she says. But does he really believe in his policies? Kate joins me now with Sebastian Payne, director of the centre-right think tank Onward. Kate, you write in this week's magazine about Rishi Sunak's government and how he says he wants to cut the size of the state, but actually it's growing ever bigger. Tell us about this argument. So if we go back just one year and we look at the end of Rishi Sunak's time in the Treasury as Chancellor, it was very clear where he stood philosophically and on public policy. This was a fiscal hawk. He was somebody who was terrified that the UK was borrowing and spending so much money. He was one of the first politicians in the UK to predict the inflation crisis. He understood the consequences of all this. Um, he hated the idea of giving public, public services more money without reform. Um, you know, a very classic conservative in many ways. And I, I think in many ways did own that that claim to Thatcherism, perhaps in a slightly more modern, more nuanced context. Um, now we go forward a year and Rishi Sunak is in charge. He can no longer claim that another prime minister is forcing him to spend money. And we look at what he's doing and where he has been consistent is always talking about trade-offs. Mm. He does not pretend that you can borrow and spend as you'd like and cut taxes and the public finances will be fine. He does believe things need to be costed. He's consistent on that. But look at the choices he's making. He's going for more spending, a higher tax rate than there even was under Boris Johnson, a higher tax burden, uh, approaching about 78 years. Um, he's somebody who is increasing, bloating the size of the state, adding to the public services, rather than looking at tax cuts, rather than looking at areas for efficiency. Um, and I think we need to talk about that because um, the narrative suggests one thing and the action suggests quite another. Um, and I think those actions suggest that we are certainly 
in a high tax, high spend Tory era. And if anyone was going to change that, apart from Liz Truss's attempt, um, it might have been in a in a more in a more stable, more pragmatic way, Rishi Sunak. But we're not seeing it. Seb, is that a fair criticism? Well, I think obviously conservatism by its definition is a kind of adaptable creed. It's for the time that it serves. And in Kate's piece, you refer back to the Mays lecture, which is the nearest thing to an ur text of what Rishi Sunak stands for in terms of his intellectual outlook. But clearly that was when he was chancellor and he adapt. he's now prime minister. And all those things you said he's facing are completely true. But you're also, these are not necessarily his fault. You know, you have got the Ukraine war, the backlogs from COVID, the worldwide inflation crisis, the energy security problem. And so you're right that there are trade-offs. But I think when you look at the decisions the Prime Minister is making, he is favouring the kind of pragmatism you've seen from many Conservative Prime Ministers. Because you mentioned in the in the piece in the magazine this week, Kate, the windfall tax, and say this is an example of how he's moving away from that original vision. You know, windfall tax have been used several times by Conservative Prime Ministers when the time's needed them. George Osborne promoted one after the financial crisis. Margaret Thatcher did two windfall taxes on the banks, again, to try and get that sense of fairness. Because if you're not doing that, the question is, what is the alternative? And I think the question I'd say to you is that if you look at what Mr Sunak is doing, we'd all like tax cuts. I think no one's disagreeing with that. And I think we probably will get some tax cuts before the general election. But it's what would you like to see now? I think the most sympathetic argument to Rishi Sunak is that he's had to deal with a lot of external factors, which you just listed out there. And he has to clean up, clean up a lot of other people's economic messiness. Uh, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, to name a few people. He has been put in really difficult circumstances. That is the argument he's always made, right? When he was hiking corporation tax in the March budget for 2021, um, you know, when he's been growing the size of the state, doing all of these handouts, he's always been saying, I'm forced to do it. The question I'm asking this week is, well, you're in charge now, and can we really claim everything that's happening is something that you're being forced to do? Two examples I use are the childcare handout to middle-class families, 33 hours a week, and, and also if we look at what's going to happen to the welfare bill under the new projections from this last budget, which was Jeremy Hunt, overseen by Rishi Sunak, it's increasing by 16% over the next four years. It's gonna go up to 330 billion pounds. Um, I see that as a political choice. I see that as a decision not to reform the childcare sector, a decision not to reform welfare, a decision to spend more money. On the windfall tax, I think there's a narrative here too, which we see a bit with corporation tax as well, which is that Rishi Sunak is always keen to say, to show that he's so pro-business, so long as he gets along with business. And then when he wants them to do something, which is usually to invest, that looming threat of a tax is, is hovering over them, and eventually it comes in. I don't think that's even how necessarily Rishi Sunak would describe the brand of conservatism that he signs up to, but that is what we're getting. Um, and the argument I would, I would use around windfall taxes is, okay, other people have implemented them. We are seeing real consequences. They are always a bad idea. Um, we, we have major energy companies that are now um, get, firing hundreds of people. We're seeing um, them take their money to other countries. We're seeing hundreds of millions of pounds leaving this country. When when it could be invested in cleaner and greener energy here. There are real consequences to all of this. And I, I think Rishi Sunak knows this. I think he's possibly one of um, the most economically literate prime ministers we've ever had. And uh, I, you know, I think he's well aware of these arguments. He can see the consequences. He's in charge now. He can change the direction. 
But I think a lot of this is about is, is about choices, as you say, and you can do all those things. And I think if you take a particular view of conservatism to critique them, you can say, well, actually, no, they're not that conservative. But then the question is, what is the alternative to these things? The reason Rishi Sunak did the win for tax was because we had a very cute problem with energy bills there. And if you don't do that win for tax, where are you going to get the money to pay for that? Or are you going to pass those bills on to consumers? That has political consequences. I mean, the government would be spectacularly unpopular if you did that. With childcare, again, that's an example of trying to deal with a problem with the labour market and trying to help mothers who want to get back into the workplace do so after that. I think where I agree with you, Kate, though, is about the ambition of reform within public service that at the moment is not quite enough ambition to look at these things. If you think about when the Conservatives came back into power in 2010, you had plans for universal credit, which I think is one of the great success stories of the past 13 years. But where's the ambition for that now? You're right that there still needs to be this push to look at people who are not active within the workplace. The NHS, uh, something I know you love right about a lot, that is something that does need to have a look at in terms of what it, the structure of it and where it's going in the future. But again, it's something that's politically not, you can't really touch at the moment. So ultimately, I think when you look at what Rishi Sunak is doing, you're right, he does know that in his ideal dream world, this is not the kind of approach he'd be doing. But he's having to deal with the circumstances he's got now. And if you weren't doing those things, again, it's in this case, what is the alternative? So if you were to try and cut the tax burden, you're right, it is obviously the highest, I think it's seven decades, but by OECD standards, the individual taxes are not actually that high, then where's that money go from? Where's it going to come to? And I think a lot of this speaks to the fact we're at almost the end of a political cycle, that we've got a general election next year in May or October, depending on who you listen to in Westminster, and almost everything that's being talked about thought about through the government is through the election lens. And I think what I think you should be looking at as well is what actual reforms can you get done to make things better before then? Looking ahead to the next election, I want to ask you both, what are the kind of key differences philosophically and pragmatically between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer and how they approach the, the state? Because as you say, Kate, I mean, it seems to be sort of very kind of interventions model for the state. W are there going to be any kind of, you know, d dividing lines between the two and it's a clear blue water? Or is it simply now about sort of techn technocracy and kind of functionary like we saw in the sort of 60s and 70s in the sort of post-war consensus? Mm. Um, well, look, there are definitely key differences between Labour and the Tories right now. I think the difficulty is separating the philosophy behind it. And that is really, really worrying. Uh, so you have Kia Stammer arguing that we should stop new production of oil in the North Sea. Um, that argument is made possible because of things like an effective 75% tax rate on those energy companies brought in by Rishi Sunak. You have Labour hinting at the idea that they would do an outright smoking ban for younger generations. That is made possible by all of the Tory party's nanny state interventions. And the difficulty for the Tories, if they were to find themselves out of power, is that you, they would find themselves in a position where they would disagree with the policy, but when you broke it down, they would struggle to disagree with, 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 with the, the fundamental pillars that it was based on. I mean, look at something like the energy price guarantee, price controls, which have been in the news this week. I, I don't think number 10 is implementing mandatory price controls on supermarkets, but how did they end up in a situation where those words were even being bandied about? Um, you know, this is, this is like economic illiteracy 101. Um, and, and the fact that that's happening is, I think, partially because the Tory party has been playing with price controls. And, you know, Seb, you keep saying, well, what could they do differently? You know, I think that kind of argument is brought up all the time. And I have always given the chancellor uh, quite a lot of sympathy on this point because he truly found himself in a unique position. But if you're arguing that you need the windfall tax to subsidize households for their energy costs, don't expand the energy price guarantee, which Jeremy Hunt did. 
under Rishi Sunak. Don't expand that huge middle-class subsidy for so many people who don't need it. Go back to that targeted approach. I, I think this idea that you can simply say external forces have made it this way would actually be to underplay um, so much of the credibility that Rishi Sunak has built up over the past few years. Um, it would be to underplay him as a politician. I think it's quite clear he can do more. Um, the issue, of course, is, is that there isn't a lot of time to do it, because as you say, Seb, you know, an election is not that far away. I think the philosophy difference is that I still think Rishi Sunak, first of all, believes in market solutions for things. I'm not sure you see that necessarily from Keir Starmer, because if you take the North Sea oil announcement this week, you know, the only is as, as people have said, if you do that, that's going to make the UK more reliant on imports from overseas. And that's something that has big uh, energy security consequences for the UK. And I think Rishi Sunak has got a clear dividing line there in terms of how he's looking at by, again, this kind of pragmatic approach that I still think is focused on what he's doing on looking for market solutions where you can. But it's not unrestrained market solutions. And I don't think that, you know, the broad base of conservatism is not necessarily just about having a state that is absent. It is about an active state. And, you know, to going back to what I said earlier, the person who's often held up as the most purest prime minister in terms of free market economics was Margaret Thatcher, who introduced the development corporations who shied away from nationalizing the railways, you know, and who bailed out ICL, the big British computer company in the 1980s. She was pragmatic in the same way Rishi Sunak is pragmatic. And it's no coincidence that Nigel Lawson, obviously her great chancellor, endorsed Mr. Sunak in the leadership contest because of that focus on sound finances. But I think when you come to the next election, you know, Keir Starmer is clearly being pulled in one way by Labour's activist base. That's the only reason I could see you would make that North Sea oil announcement because you, they're worried about the Green Party and that kind of contingent that's got very radical views views on climate change. But I think what you will see is indications because there's not much time left to make a much more free market case for this government. But I think there will be something on the tax burden. There will be more ambition on informing public services. But on the one hand, don't forget, Rishi Sunak's been Prime Minister about six months now. And as you said, Kate, has a lot of fiscal messes to clean up from several previous Prime Ministers. He's making headway on that. The question that he's going to be focused on is come the autumn when hopefully the economy is in a better place, inflation is coming down, and there's a bit more political space to play with. How do you use that? And that will actually test your philosophy at that point. What do you do? Are you doing things with the election or are you looking at more ambition? I don't think we're running the risk of having an absent state. That's not the problem right now. You know, it, there's a lot of talk of the 1970s this week, and uh, Mel Stride actually had to go on the airwaves and, you know, responding to criticisms about price control, say, we're not heading towards the 1970s. I mean, that a Tory party has to make that clear, mm. shows the situation we're in. And, and he's right that there are fundamental differences. The tax burden's higher than it was in the 70s. It's the worse state, than the 70s. The state is double the size. So I, I don't think the the fear right now is that we're going to some kind of absent kind of government. The, the fear right now is that it is so big, so overbearing, and it is a Tory government. And by the way, I should make very clear, successive Tory governments um, that have allowed this to happen. And I, I fear Rishi Sunak might fall into the same trouble as Boris Johnson did, as Theresa May did, where they take their eye off the ball on this and they discover that certain kinds of public policy have happened to them. And they find themselves in a position where it's actually very difficult for them to make the case for a leaner, more effective mm. state because they're the ones 
that muddied it in the first place. And I think the point on price control shows as well a sort of discipline because I think there's absolutely no way a Conservative government is going to introduce price controls. I think you had some overzealous briefing from a junior spad that makes it into a Sunday newspaper. Uh, and of course, you said Mel Stride came out and slammed that right down because that is just not going to happen. But I think you have got a point about your eye on the ball there, Kate, that you're saying that you've got to think, what are your instincts? What are you trying to aim towards? And if you go back and said to the May's lecture, I still think Rishi Sunak believes that. Mm. That is what he is trying to get at. But it's how and where you adapt that to these particular circumstances. A debate that's going to carry on. Thank you very much for joining us. Are you happy in your work? Well, that's certainly not a question I get asked very regularly. But in the civil service, navel-gazing is an annual routine. Sketch writer Quentin Letts of The Times writes for this week's magazine that feedback forms and people surveys have turned the blob into a bureaucratic machine incapable of getting work done. But is he right? He's with me now to discuss. Now, Quentin, you write in this week's magazine about the Civil Service People Survey. Uh, tell us what inspired you to write about this. Well, there was a select committee uh, in which the, uh, the Chief Operating Officer of the Civil Service, Alex Chisholm, I almost called him Sir Alex, was giving evidence about this thing along with two other top mandarins. This is the People Survey where they basically, the Civil Service goes to 350,000 civil servants and does, does to them what happens in cheap restaurants when someone comes along and says, everything all right with your meal? <laughs> and uh, this is the civil service saying to its employees, is there anything you want to complain about? And uh, guess what? They, they do. They do want to complain about. And the main thing they want to complain about is pay. Yeah. So they say, um, we, we think we're being worked too hard and we're not being paid enough. And uh, therefore, there is now then evidence for, uh, for pay rises. It's a wonderful circle. <laughs> You've been covering Westminster now for about 30 odd years. How was the... <laughs> sorry to remind you. Uh, <laughs> how was the quality of Mandarin of Sir Humphrey changed in that time? Well, it was not so evidently subpar. Um, the civil servants of old tended not to be seen very much and didn't do nearly as many select committees. And therefore we had an ideal that they were these great figures in Elysium who were able... And now that we can see them, we realise they're anything but able, and they're frightful wafflers. And Chisholm, uh, has a, he has a wonderful voice, a deep voice, he's uh, downside, he went to inside, went to Oxford. He's all the business. But he talks seamless balls, uh, if we can say that. And um, really, it just comes out of him um, like a, a, a long stream of sausage. And uh, there he was with, with two other people doing the same next to him. Must have been quite a tough experience for you. These, these, these select committees become like this. But going back to your question about the civil servants, I think, I suspect that they have always probably been not as good as we, we hoped or we imagined. But it's quite good, if you're not very good, to keep quiet about it and not to be seen on parade. So my advice to mandarins is, you know, if you're asked to do a select committee, say no. <laughs> And you've had a bit of a run-in with Alex Chisholm and you write in this week's oh, magazine. Oh, well, not really. I had a run-in with his meter. Um, uh, I wrote about him before in The Times and uh, I, I took the rise slightly. And uh, um, the mother Chisholm wrote in from, I think, Hampshire. Um, a steaming missive arrived from me, handwritten in ink, and uh, almost levitating off the desk. She was so angry with me and I loved it. I, I thought she was terrific. And she put me firmly in my place. She's obviously... Um, you know, a proper old dragon. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I've fallen in love with Mrs Chisholm now. But, um, you know, her son is still worthy of a certain amount of satire. <laughs> and 
What do you think about you sort of talk about the civil service being a sort of conspiracy about the side of a blob? Do you think that they're you know, capable enough to mount a coup against the government? Well, they are quite good. The one thing they're good at, uh, the civil service, is uh, uh, taking tax out of our pockets. It's funny, when it comes to actually doing stuff that looks after them mm. um, or giving them the money to pay, for them, pay themselves, they are quite good. And so they do this people survey, um, 350,000 people, I think there's something like 17,000 business units in the civil service, get this, and uh, across 100 departments. And uh, it's quite a big operation. It obviously has a team of people who are needed. I must say, listening to that select committee, do you remember the Bird and Fortune yeah. sketches on the Brennan Show? It was very like that, <laughs> where the, the self-justifications and about how important it all was, about how much hard work it was. And not only did they have the survey, they also have surveys of the survey and they have benchmarking and they have best practice. And, uh, and there's also an international element where the OECD is involved and so that presumably necessitates foreign fact-finding trips uh, over weekends in glorious places like Strasbourg and uh, sunnier climes. But uh, the, the, I don't know, I mean, it's a rude question, James, but have you ever mined your belly button for fluff? <laughs> uh, I have, I sometimes do it. <laughs> Uh, 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 and, it, it, you know, you can find things. It's quite a Moorish activity. <laughs> you, you look down and you say, oh, that's interesting. You sort of find a bits of old lunch. And the more you do it, the more you want to do it. And it becomes a terrible time waster. And this is basically what this people survey is. It's a terrible time-wasting belly button fluff um, mining operation. And I think it was Peter Hennessy who coined the phrase that is often in Whitehall, it's not so much about um, evidence-based policy making as policy-based evidence making, where you get into this kind of <laughs> endless cycle of stuff. Peter would have loved this, but of course Peter was the uh, tutor mm. of Simon Case, who is the head of the civil service. And why on earth, at a time when our tax rates are shooting up, when our national debt is shooting up, what we're doing, wasting time and money on this, I don't know. We, and it was not disclosed how much this cost, but one dreads to think. Uh, and um, they were asked how often people looked at these dashboards. They have dashboards, of course, for the, um, this, this people survey. And 17,000 civil servants a day look at this thing. But, you know, this survey, wouldn't you like to be asked how you're feeling at work? Not wildly. Uh, I've never been in all those years you mentioned of being a hack. I've never been asked. I, don't think, I can't remember ever being asked, are you happy? And um, well, what a waste of time. Let's just get on with the job. And my final question, Quentin, I mean, you've been covering Whitehall for 30 odd years or so. I'm sure there'll be some aspiring Mandarins watching this at home, young civil servants. What kind of tips would you give them on, in a game, if you're going to be in a select committee, you can't get out of it. What are the best ways to waffle and prevaricate that you've seen from your many years watching these things? Give very short answers. Very short answers. Give yes or no, and then the MP hasn't had time to think up the next. It's the same at Prime Minister's questions. Brevity is all. Brevity is completely confounding. Uh, it throws them. And also that way you, uh, you get out of it quicker because they'll run out of questions. Well, there we are for those watching at home. Thank you, Quentin. Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has just called a snap election in Spain after a crushing defeat in regional polls. As the right wing rises in Spain, can the Prime Minister cling on to his post? With me now is the former minister and journalist Esperanza Aguirre. And uh, we've covered a lot about Italy, what's going on with the new prime minister there. We've talked about the ruptures in France. But tell us what's happening in the Spanish situation with an election coming up. Well, as you know, we've uh, recently, last week, we had uh, uh, municipal and regional elections. And in that elections, uh, the, the popular party, which is uh, centre-right, had a big success. 
And there was also a party uh, far more to the right that uh, had also a great uh, result. The Socialist Party, who's governing with the communists, the independentists, and the former terrorists, which are in his uh, lists and have not um, say they they they've they, have, they are sorry for the for the crimes they had, uh, has had a, a failure, enormous failure. Especially the communists, they are not no more in the more important regional governments. And now. The, the president of the government, the prime minister, you should say, the, the elections took place on a Sunday. On Monday, uh, he decided to uh, call a general election for the 23rd of July, which means we're going to vote at 40 or more degrees centigrade because it, July is here, very, very hot month, especially in the south of Spain. Even in Andalusia, which is the, the south, the southern region of Spain, it is forbidden to call elections in July or August, but not general elections. That's a national thing. Is there a bit of an upset about this? A kind of outcry? We, we are upset because we think uh, it is very difficult to have a vote in Spain on the twenty third of July because the half of the Spanish people are on a vacation. And the, the male vote is very difficult here, but he's in a, he, he has done it and he can do it because he's the prime minister. And he has dissolved the Cortes Generales and he, had called, he has called uh, a general election. Uh, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, he has um, what we have called Frankenstein government which means it was not a socialist party, which is similar to Labour, Labour, moderate Labour. It is the only uh, government in, in Europe, which is with the communists in the, in the government, that have done uh, very incredible things. Uh, and and the, the prime minister has um, done everything that the communists wanted. And how much trouble do you think Pedro Sanchez is in? Well, I don't think he's in trouble. He said he all he wanted is to go to a, a village in Almeria in the south of Spain and rest. So we hope in August he could do that. And we are going to have the government and uh, uh, what we have said, get back every uh, stupid laws that this man has approved with the Frankenstein majority. A lot of Europe seems to be heading to the right. Is this a trend which Spain is following? Well, we, we have been trending to the left for the last uh, five years. This is the first time we, we are in the right, but that uh, it has been a local and regional election. So uh, I hope in the general election, our party, my party, the popular party, who has been, uh, who, who comes every every time we have to arrange the economy with uh, Mr. Aznar first and then Mr. Rajoy, and then the socialists come, they spend all uh, the money of the contributors, and we have to come to arrange the, the political and economic matters. And how relevant is the issue of Catalonian separatism? It's very relevant because uh, Catalonia is not Scotland. Uh, uh, Scotland has been independent for many years, and uh, uh, you are United Kingdom. You have four nations. In our constitution, which was voted in Catalonia for 92% uh, of the people, uh, our constitution says Spain is a, an only 
uh, is only one nation. So uh, if you want to be separatist, which the Basque uh, did once, you have to, to follow the rules. The rule of law is important in England. That's why I admire so much the British people. And here, the rule of law said, if you want to separate from Spain, you have to come to the national parliament, you have to be voted there, and then you have a national referendum. No, they did a local referendum and, uh, and they decided to be separate. What I told you, the, the, the leader of the Basque uh, nationalists came to the National Party. He did not have the majority. Oh, it's only the overall majority, it's not a, a qualified majority. The overall majority, he did not have it. And he came back because he wanted to go to be like Puerto Rico, um, a, a, a free um, a free associated state or something like that with Puerto Rico is with the United with the United States. Um, Esperanza, what do you make of the current caliber of politicians in Spain? Well, they, they, what what we say there's there's all in the in the vanguard of the Lord. We have very good politicians in both sides, and we have very bad politicians in both sides too. Um, Populism is what you're asking, really. No, there's populism in the in the Communist Party, Mister Mister Iglesias, uh, which once because it has been very important the results in the region of Madrid. Mister mm -hmm. Iglesias, the leader, former leader of the Podemos Party, which is the Communist Party in Spain, from his point of view, is a good politician. From my point of view, he is a good politician, but his ideas are contrary to mine. And on the right, there are also populists. Is Vox a populist party, which is on the far right? Mm. Uh, well, we, we, popular party, agree with Vox in the three most important things. The unity of Spain, the defending, defending property and defending liberty. In other things, we are not completely agree with them. I do not agree in disappearing the regional government because I have been, I have been in the national government, in the national Senate. I was the president of the Senate, and also I have been president of the regional government of Madrid. And I can tell you, I would not have been able to do what I did and what I think is very good for Madrid if I had to wait for the socialist prime minister we had at the time to do the things. I was free in my original laws to do what I thought it was the best for the Madrileños. And just finally, Vox might form a coalition government. Uh, what are they likely to ask for in government? I think they are going to ask to derogar, take out the laws that uh, were very, very bad for Spain and the socialist Frankenstein government has just approved. I think they're going to ask that. And we will be, we will agree in most of them. For example, what they call the law of the democratic memoir, which means you cannot be, you cannot have the freedom of speech or the freedom of writing uh, if you think that, for example, um, Franco did something uh, good, no, you can't do that. It would be a crime. Uh, another law, the law that is called the yes is yes, we call the CSC, which means that uh, they have made disappear the presumption of innocence for, uh, for the 50% of population. Men don't have a presumption of innocence. If a woman says, 
that she did not want to have um, sex with him. She says that uh, the, the man had to demonstrate that that is not true. Instead of the other one have to prove that her, there has been a rape, you understand? I don't know if I explained this in my very, very, very forgotten English. Not at all, it's great. Um, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Thank you. Next, what is behind this strange obsession with Philip Schofield? Asked Douglas Murray in this week's magazine. Is it a distraction from the bigger problems facing Britain? He's with me now to discuss. So Douglas, in this week's magazine, uh, you write about Philip Schofield. Uh, what inspired you to choose this topic for your column? <laughs> well, obviously, I mean, it's an incredibly inspirational subject. No, I mean, really, it was just the fact that I have been astonished, amazed that the last 10 days of news in Britain has been so almost <laughs> completely blackout wall to wall Philip Schofield. I, I said recently in my column, I didn't think that the British media could get more absurd than their obsession with uh, the speeding awareness course that the Home Secretary may have to go on. And to the extent that British journalists from the BBC and ITV and Sky were flown out to the G7 in Tokyo, where they used the opportunity of being in Japan to ask Rishi Sunak about Suella Braverman's speeding awareness course. And I said there, I mean, what gives here this obsession of the British media with these minutiae stories? You know, I I've written about this in the magazine before in the political field. Uh, we had the weeks and weeks of controversy over Dominic Raab and the manner in which he threw a cherry tomato into a bin, a throw that resounded across Whitehall apparently and terrified the civil service who then said they were bullied. And then you get all the sort of, uh, you know, normal sort of Whitehall covering journalists obsessed with this. How can we get rid of the deputy prime minister? Then they move on to the home secretary. And now it seems, as I always say, there's always another circle to the inferno. It seems that the, the, the pack has moved on to the This Morning couch. And as I say in my column, uh, uh, I hope it's no insult to uh, Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield to say this, but less than 1% of the population tuned in to This Morning. So what's the explanation for wall-to-wall -wall coverage uh, about these two really very uninteresting people? I mean, well, Douglas, I mean, some might say you're a bit of a snob, though, if you're not interested in breakfast television. I mean, what's wrong with people being allowed to sort of discuss the ins and outs and these sort of people, they, they live in the, spot, the public spotlight? Uh, what's wrong with us discussing uh, their fall from grace? Yeah, no, I mean, then some people may say I'm a bit of a snob for, uh, for this, but there we are. Um, uh, I really don't mind the accusation levelled at me if it's to do with not wanting to be completely obsessed with uh, morning television that really people aren't interested in anyway, as I say, because you can tell from the viewing figures. Anyway, no, it, it is really just that there, there is, it is what I describe as, I think, a sort of um, an odd activity, a displacement activity going on in modern Britain that is, is 
reflected in other countries as well, but I think is nowhere as parochial as it is in the UK. A weird displacement activity with getting on with other things like, you know, tearing up the ITV morning scheduling offices. Uh, um, what are we really doing when we're doing this? What is really happening when we get these national obsessions of who knew what, when? What is it that we're doing? And my, my explanation, as I say in the column, is we're just distracting ourselves because all the really big issues in our country, we completely fail to deal with. I mean, you know, I just watched, uh, I mean, it's not the biggest issue in the country, but I just watched another Labour politician fail to say that women, by and large, don't have penises. They, they get themselves into these Middle Ages-like uh, contortions on, on these questions of, of heresy and dogma. And, uh, but, but if you get them onto anything important, Ask anyone in the cabinet or shadow cabinet about the, about energy policy, about housing policy, about immigration policy, about uh, fiscal policy, about borrowing, debt, unfunded pensions, liabilities, inflation, you name it. What do they have to say? What do any of them have to say? I mean, Labour always tells us that they want to debate. No, they don't, because they don't have anything to say. No, none of them have anything to say about the big issues going on. And as I say, I think that there is a weird displacement activity in modern Britain, which is let's play this game of toppling person after person, politician after politician, and eventually toppling everyone off the morning uh, sofas. Uh, and then we think we've achieved something. We haven't. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we know... Uh... I'm sure you're interested to know, Douglas, that uh, MPs already said on the Culture Committee that they're going to call in ITV's bosses uh, next week to discuss the issue in Parliament. So uh, not sure what you'd make of that as displacement activity. As I say, circle after circle, I tell you. <laughs> I mean, but you write in the column that it's a sort of singularly British obsession. You spend a lot of time in America and travelling elsewhere around the world. Why do you think this is such a, a British thing, sort of focusing on the trivial rather than the fundamental? Well, it's also this, there's this question of what are we doing? Right? What, is, what is Britain doing in this era? Uh, we tried to leap out of the EU in 2016 and have had years of contortions since. Um, uh, the, the attempt to sort of reverse decline uh, keeps running into a block or a wall. Uh, Liz Truss said she wanted to reverse decline and lasted about a fortnight. So sort of decline seems back on the agenda. Um, if you ask a politician in America uh, what they want to do, on the left, they'll say they want social justice and so on. And on the right, they'll say they want to build the economy. Well, I mean, I happen to think that the latter is more plausible and a, a better answer, you know, rising tide and all of that. But they, they, they do sort of, they have a plan, which is the American economy should be going gangbusters. Um, what is the plan in Britain, exactly? I, I mean, do any of them know? Do, can Keir Starmer give a, a plausible explanation of what the country would do under his leadership? Uh, can Rishi Sunak to that, uh, when it comes to that? Can he actually say what his vision of Britain is? I, I think the answer is no. And, and that, there's something very revealing in that. And, and into that void steps all of this trivia and what I regard as being fundamentally distracting uh, activities. 
Well, quite. And I wonder, perhaps, do you think that this shows that Britain is just simply not a, a serious country now? Well, I think we haven't been for some time. But uh, I, I, I think that we really need to get out of this this rut of thinking that if if we just if if, if the media moves the latest non scandal scandal along a little bit and gets another scalp, then you know we get anywhere. We don't. We don't. Um, doesn't improve education for anyone. Doesn't improve. Um, housing opportunities for anyone doesn't improve the job market it doesn't do anything really um, and so yes it, it, it is it is a strange it's a strange British obsession and you know I'm all for trivia uh, in in certain uh, uh, you know quantities but the trivia cannot outweigh the serious stuff and as I say, I mean, it's just a very bad sign for a country that you end up being so willing to be distracted from distraction by distraction. And do you, you write in the column, um, Douglas, that you think it's about sort of misdirected anger, misdirected emotion, that all this sort of stuff is channeled into these quite trivial matters. I mean, do you think that, as you say, partly because we're w- wanting to be distracted, that we are sort of missing uh, bigger, genuine scandals in this country? I know you've um, written before very in the magazine about you know, the, what went on the, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. I mean, do you think that sort of similar scandals are being missed because we're simply focusing on completely the wrong issues? Well, I, I think that's undoubtedly the case. And as I say, several recent columns, I've t- t- tried to uh, draw people's attention to this. You know, as I, I've said fairly often recently, what, what would we be doing if we weren't doing this? Uh, what would the media be doing? What would government be doing? If, 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 if government didn't keep on getting clogged up by these sorts of, you know, cake gate, speed gate, everything's a damn gate, you know, and everyone thinks it's so original when they put gate after anything. Um, and, uh, you know, what would the government be concentrating on? What, what might it be achieving? Um, if the answer is not much more, then there's even more trouble that we're in than I thought. Uh, but, my, but my belief is, is that we, we just are horribly misdirecting our, our energies. And Yes, uh, there's there's doubtless scandals going on. There always are, um, and there are scandals that are of significance. I mean, you just mentioned Northern Ireland. The steak knife controversy has come back up again. I don't think that outside of Northern Ireland, one in a thousand households know anything about that. Maybe they don't need to, but it would probably be a more intelligent scandal to look at than the Gordon the Gophers former sofa mate scandal. Um, I, I, I think that, but as I say, the, the, the main thing isn't, isn't, you know, where are the scandals? It's a very post-Watergate thing that, that, that journalists think that their job is to find all the scandals that exist, expose them, and then win all of the awards. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very sort of post-Watergate way of doing journalism. Sometimes there are scandals, then they should be exposed. But the, the whole of politics, the whole of the country, isn't just a set of scandals waiting to be uncovered. You know, um, but... but there is some fundamental failure of the media in this, but the, the fundamental failure of the media is a fundamental failure of government. It's a reflection of that, which is the the fact that government seems not to be able to do in Britain any of the things that we need it to do, have asked it to do and want it to do. Government can't seem to do that. Uh, it waits for, for 
court judgments on things before moving ahead with anything, because it seems that the government isn't in charge. You know, Strasbourg still is, and, 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 and on certain matters, obviously on immigration and, and so on. They wait for, for decisions to be made elsewhere to allow them to make a decision. So yes, then the press reflects that by also engaging in sort of pastime trivia. Uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's very, very sad because there are huge issues we could be addressing. At the end of my column this week, I mentioned some of the sort of cosmic issues we could be addressing, um, but we're nowhere near that. And I, I, I wish that it was just possible, to, and obviously it's what I'm trying to do to encourage my fellow countrymen to just rise, raise their eyes slightly off the level of the morning television sofa and onto the things that could really matter and improve things and help our country. Because otherwise, this, this is just going to be a, a perennial game of distraction. And, it, and it's one that I find exhausting. I suspect that most of the people engaged find exhausting. Uh, and, you know, is tiring us out and wasting our energies, which need to be expended elsewhere. Well, talking of your tired energies, my final question, Douglas. Uh, there's now a vacancy on this morning's sofa. Will you be uh, throwing your hat in the ring? <laughs> Um, no, I, it, it, sound, it sounds like a proper viper's nest. Um, and um, uh, I don't mind getting up early, but I don't love it. Um, and um, it, uh, no, I, I, think, I, think, I think I'm not in the running, um, which obviously saddens me deeply, James. But on the other hand, leaves the field open for you. <laughs> oh, I, I think uh, I've got my place here at The Spectator with you, Douglas. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Great pleasure. And finally, we don't often discuss sport on this show, so we thought it was about time we did. Some of the most famous sports are invented in Britain. Rugby, cricket, polo, football. You may have seen some videos released on social media of cheese rolling Gloucestershire last week. What are these bizarre folk sports? And how many are still in practice today? Joining me now is Harry Pearson, who's written a book on the weird and wonderful world of folk sports. I'm joined now by Harry Pearson, who's here to discuss his new book, No Pie, No Priest, A Journey Through the Folk Sports of Britain. Uh, welcome to the show. For those of our listeners who aren't history buffs, when you say folk sports of Britain, what does that mean exactly? Um, I'm talking about sports that are actually embedded in the communities, not, not kind of quirky new things like extreme ironing and silly things like that, but things like coits and um, trap ball, um, skittles, all these games that date back in, into into the sort of go back into the distant past have been have been banned by monarchs since the since the 1100s at least. And I mean, how many of these sports that you cover in this book have been banned, and how many of them survive to this day? Well, my, my, all of them, all the sports in the book survive to this day, but there, there have been various attempts always to suppress things. I mean, Skittles, I think, must be the most banned game in the history of the world. There was a kind of, uh, like the war, it was like the war on drugs. There was a kind of war on Skittles that went on for 300 years. It was just about as successful as the war on drugs, I have to say, because Skittles is still, you know, still a massive sport in the West Country. Of course. Why was it so keen to be banned? Um, I think because it, because like all sport, it was associated with uh, drinking and gambling, and then of course initially as well, it kept men away from the uh, serious business of practicing uh, firing longbows or shooting longbows, I should say. And you say there about skittles being popular in the West Country. I mean, were there certain sort of areas of the country that attracted more of these kind of folk sports? 
Um, I think that there, there are certain sports that are popular in certain places. So coits, which is the you know, throwing a metal ring at a at a, a metal pin called a hob, which is set in a bed of clay, that 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 is popular in the sort of North Riding of Yorkshire, Northumberland, bits of Scotland, and bits of East Anglia. Uh, skittles is popular in the West Country, but coits and skittles can never coexist for some reason. They're they're, they're only popular they're popular in separate areas, um, but one 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 never mixes with the other. That's fascinating. And in terms of uh, these sports, I mean, are any of them particularly violent? Um, well, so somewhat violent. I mean, the old um, the old folk football matches, of which there used to be hundreds all across Britain, which were gradually banned over time. Um, the, the title of the book comes from the the Hallerton bottle kicking, um, which takes place in Leicestershire. Um, it's not actually a bottle; it's a small barrel, and it's a it's a game between two villages, Hallerton and Medbourne. Um, and originally, the the local priest gave a gave a hair pie as a kind of prize. But in 1790, he refused to give it because he said that the hair was a symbol of the pagan symbol of spring, and so he refused to. And so they they protested against him um, by writing on the rectory door, "No pie, no priest, and a job for the glazier." Apparently, in blood was written. So th those so sports like that, as you would judge from that, are quite violent. I mean, there was a famous. A notorious, I should say, game in Georgian England between the men of Suffolk and the men of Norfolk that was played on Discommon, in which nine of the participants died. You know, uh, there's no VAR, I should say. To, to... <laughs> so bottle kicking survives, um, and also cheese rolling. Is that correct? Yeah, the cheese rolling at Cooper's Hill. That's a, that's a that's again an event that goes right back into the sort of you know in the mists of time. Again, often associated with with paganism. Uh, my friend Andy Smart, who's, who sadly died last month very very suddenly, um, Andy took uh, t he's run. He said he'd run. He took part in it once, and he said he'd run with the bulls at Pamplona sixty two times, but once doing the cheese rolling at Cooper's Hill was enough because it's not really a hill that they roll the cheese down. It's actually a cliff. That's fascinating. How many of these sort of sports survive other than the two you've just mentioned? Um, well, there, there are quite a few. There are quite a few one-off sports. But then, you know, sports like Shinty, for example, in Ireland or Scotland, which is a really fantastic game, which for, for some reason we played at my primary school in Yorkshire. The way they're giving a lot of Yorkshire kids a stick and telling them to hit things with, it's a good idea. I'm not sure. But, I mean, Shinty is an absolutely fantastic game, like a kind of a rogue version of hockey. Um and I loved it as a small boy. And then I discovered later on that um, one of the great players from Newton Moore, there was a guy called Sir Thomas McPherson. Before, he, he actually escaped from a Nazi POW camp on a motorbike, thus inspiring the character of Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. So once you know that, how could you not love Shinty? Is that your favourite sport of those covered in this book then? I think that is it. I think that is. I mean, it's a, it's a sport with very few rules, and I think anyone watching it would just love it. It just moves around from end to end at a uh, you know, cracking pace. Everyone there will tell you that it looks quite dangerous, and they'll tell you, oh, no, it's not dangerous at all. And then within five seconds, you can guarantee someone will be hit in the face and have to go off, with a, go off to hospital for stitches. So from writing this book about a thousand years of, sort of British sporting history, what sort of trends and patterns survive to this day, for instance, in terms of engagement or, you know, the sort of local civic pride in certain sports? Well, I think I think there are. I mean, Coits is quite interesting. Is it funny enough, where I grew up in, in the North Yorkshire Moors, Coits was really popular. And then I moved to Northumberland and it turns out the bit of Northumberland that I live in, Coits is really popular. And the the local league, when I moved here, had eight teams in it. 
and now it's got 24 teams in it. So Coits has actually got more popular. Bat and Trap in Kent, which is a, a game that probably predates cricket. Um, that again, the, the leagues there around um, Canterbury, they, they, they've actually increased the number of players around there as if people really want to get, they do want to get involved in sport and maybe a sport that they can play in teams where it's not too strenuous so people can play it at all ages, which I think is one of the advantages. And is Britain a particularly sporting nation then? Obviously, I think of the kind of Victorian inventions, things like association football and rugby, and before that, you know, the rules of cricket, etc. But it seems from you know, reading of this book that there's been always a sort of, at a, a very local level, even you know, unorganised or very organic sporting practices have always been a part of this country's history. Yeah, I think they are, and I think what's interesting about that is that some sports were codified and had a and had a central um, had a central body that organised them, and so you see that with darts. I mean, darts was just another pub sport until the nineteen twenties when it got a national association, um, much to the annoyance of people like T. H. White, who felt that you know Britain was becoming homogenised and should go back to the old folk ways in which everyone everyone had their own their own type of dartboard and had their own rules which is what happens in skittles i mean that's probably why skittles has never become as big a sport as darts because basically if you play in somerset you play by completely different rules than you do in gloucestershire and even within gloucestershire you play with different rules between you know between different towns and different villages and who was responsible for these cultures surviving through the centuries? I mean, you mentioned uh, about the hair pie scramble, which seems a particularly interesting uh, type of sporting event in the 18th century and the clergy's role in that. So was it often priests and vicars who were championing these kind of things? Some of, some of them were, but a lot of, they tended to champion sports like cricket that were out of doors and which weren't, were generally associated with a kind of muscular Christianity, whereas... Most of the other games that they didn't like, like Skittles, were associated with public houses. Cricket was a way of getting people out of public houses generally. It's why if you look in Lancashire, lots of the cricket teams in Lancashire were founded by Methodists. And that was, you know, it was a way of getting men away from drinking and cockfighting and other and gambling. Um, but whereas Skittles and things like that tended to be associated with drinking. And in terms of the bans then, when was the last time any sort of monarch really tried to get involved in banning certain sports? Well, there were, there were certain sports, like I say, Skittles particularly. They, even in even in the seventeen nineties, they were going around in places like Manchester, saying that you know, if if you were found with a Skittle alley, you would be, you would be it would be destroyed and you would be fined. And when um, Joseph Strutt, who was the first guy who really wrote about English sports and pastimes in Georgian England, he said when he moved to England, he said there are no Skittle alleys left in in London. There are, there are no Skittle alleys left in London. Um, although, as it turned out, they were. <laughs> they were just, they were kind of underground skittle alleys. Below rave culture in the 80s, I think they must have been organised like that. <laughs> and, and looking ahead to the future then, what is the future going to be like for folk sports? And are new folk sports still being invented? Um, I think that's sort of new, as I say, new kind of eccentric things where you know, people are playing Quidditch and horseball and all these kind of things. But I think that the old sports still, they still hang on to kind of tenaciously. Um, and and really, in recent years, seem to maybe maybe because of an, a greater interest in craft beer and real ale, maybe as as help. But certainly, the coits and sports like that are really are really vibrant. Well, here's the future of uh, Shinty and Skittles. Then, thank you for joining me, Harry. That's it for this week. Once again, thanks to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring the week in sixty minutes. Canaccord will provide you with the expertise you need to help you build your wealth with confidence. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.